Um, welcome, everybody. So in today's session, uh, we will provide an overview of the background and proposals um, in the National Heavy Vehicle Driver Competency Framework um, Consultation Regulation Impact Statement, or the series. Uh, my name is Ekaterina. I'm a Communications Officer at Austroads, um, and I will be moderating today's session. So we have uh, more than 170 people registered for today. So welcome to you all, and thanks for joining us. A little bit um, before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. I pay my respect to all this past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the original people of New Zealand. A little bit about Australis. Um, we are the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies and our focus is to support our member organizations to deliver an improved road transport network. Um, a bit of housekeeping. So today's session will run for 60 minutes uh, with around 40 minutes for presentation and question breaks um, throughout the session. The slides that we're using today can be downloaded from the handout section uh, of your sidebar, which you will find on the right-hand side of your screen. To send us your questions uh, for the Q&A, please use the question icon um, on your sidebar. If you have any technical problems, uh, let us know. But just a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, uh, the issue is most likely with your internet connection. So leaving the session, uh, closing your browser and rejoining again by your email registration link usually helps. Um, this session has been recorded and we will let you know when the recording uh, is available on our website. And if you listen to podcasts, you can find Australia in your podcast app. Our presenters for today are Paul Davis, Austro's General Manager Programs. Paul will introduce uh, the series and will talk about the proposed changes in detail. And we will have a few breaks during the session to answer your questions. Those breaks will be moderated by Judy Oswin from Judy Oswin Consulting. Judy has helped us uh, develop and refine um, options for the series. All right, uh, welcome Paul and Judy and over to you, Paul. Thank you, Ekaterina, and hello everybody uh, joining us today. Thanks for making the time. Uh, I'll start by outlining, just before we get going, that the purpose of a series is to present the options available to address a problem. So it's designed to describe the problem and why government action is needed, and it also invites feedback to help shape the recommended policy option that we end up providing to ministers. So what we're talking about today are options under consideration, and we are looking quite specifically for feedback on those options as they're presented. So in today's webinar, we'll cover the context and the rationale for the changes that are proposed in the CRIS, the overview of the approach and the four key areas of change that are proposed and considered in the CRIS, the specific policy changes under consideration, uh, training provider governance changes that are under consideration and the next steps. So as Ekaterina said, we will be covering quite a lot today and rather than waiting to the end to uh, save up all the questions uh, to that point, I'll pause at a couple of select times in the presentation to answer questions as well. So please raise your question as soon as you think of it uh, as I'm covering a particular piece of material and Judy who's moderating will, um, will aim to raise questions that represent broad themes that are emerging given the large number of people on the call. If you raise a question that we don't happen to be able to answer today, uh, we will endeavour to address it later, so rest assured on that. 
I'll start with the context and rationale for change. In this section, I'm going to cover the broad context for the change, the industry feedback that we've received, and the research that has influenced our understanding of the problem and the proposed solutions. So with a growing freight task and changing vehicle fleet, Australia needs well-trained and capable heavy vehicle drivers. And that starts with effective heavy vehicle driver licensing. The National Heavy Vehicle Driver Competency Framework has been in place since 2011, but it's only been adopted in four states and territories. There are a number of reasons for that lack of adoption, and that includes that jurisdictions have both in-sourced and outsourced training and assessment approaches. Some state-based approaches are considered stronger, and jurisdictions do have competing priorities as well in bringing these things in. So at the request of Transport Ministers, Austroads is undertaking an extensive program of work to review and improve the National Heavy Vehicle Driver Competency Framework. Industry feedback, emerging research and evidence point to quite a few opportunities to improve the safety, the driver training experience and job readiness by strengthening the competencies and assessment contained in the framework and overall licensing policy. In development of the proposed changes, Austroads consulted quite broadly with industry, and that includes trucking industry and bus industry associations, other industry associations who are heavy reliers on uh, heavy vehicles, such as crane, cement, concrete aggregates, uh, that sort of thing, unions, government regulators, heavy vehicle operators, freight, bus and ancillary operators, insurers and heavy vehicle training organisations. So we consulted quite broadly and, and widely. There were some strong common themes that emerged in that feedback. And that includes that there was recognition that increased behind the wheel time is important for drivers to build their skill. And supervised driving increases the confidence of drivers uh, and uh, confidence in their skills and reduces the risk of crash. There was some concern around the current model. The current tenure model does not guarantee readiness to drive to operate higher classes of vehicles. Sitting on the couch for a year does not build experience. Drivers holding an MC licence are not competent to manage, necessarily manage, the largest multi-combination vehicles. And there were concerns with some of the unusually short courses being offered by heavy vehicle driver trainers. The review considered research from a range of sources, including the Monash University Accident Research Centre, or MUARC, Austroads Works, Coroner's Reports, Heavy Vehicle Crash Data and Data from Insurers, the Bureau of Infrastructure and Transport Research Economics and the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Some of those research findings included that there's a need to increase exposure to skill development, uh, which has been a focus of coroner's findings and recommendations from the Senate Rural and Regional Affairs and Transport Reference Committee's aspects of road safety final report. And it's found that the drivers are not skilled in some core areas, such as securing loads, coupling and uncoupling trailers, reversing and steep hill descents. While the current National Heavy Vehicle Driver Competency Framework spells out 15 core areas for assessment and training, there's no standardised training material and the short length of some courses means it would be exceptionally difficult for learners to become competent in the breadth of knowledge and skills that are needed to operate a heavy vehicle. Newark's Victorian research identified and evaluated the relationship between some of the pre-licensing uh, risk factors and heavy vehicle safety outcomes. It found that a past crash history and a history of serious driving offences are strong predictors of future heavy vehicle crashes. Some of the risk factors that they found included a history of driving offences, a prior heavy vehicle crash history, particularly if coupled with an offence, or limited experience and training in a light vehicle such as novice drivers who didn't complete their supervised driving hours, or gaining a heavy vehicle license, such as a medium rigid or heavy rigid license, 
while still on a probation P1 or P2 license. Uh, it's worth noting that the research did not uh, show enough data to identify an increase for the light rigid vehicles. The research found that including, excluding people with a serious driving offence history has particularly strong benefits in reducing future heavy vehicle related crashes. Austroads has engaged MUARC to replicate the Victorian analysis in Queensland. The aim is to establish whether or not the same or different, will, same or different results will be found in another state that has varied driving conditions, such as more long distance driving and use of high productivity vehicles, as well as different licensing rules, for example, younger ages for car licensing. The combined research findings from both the Victorian and Queensland studies will be considered in any final decision making. Other research detailed in, in, further in the series has also influenced the proposed changes. The work completed as part of the National Heavy Vehicle Driver Competency Review has concluded that hazard perception testing would improve the safety of heavy vehicle drivers operating in the road environment. Literature suggests a correlation between a potential driver's degree of hazard perception and the risk of being involved in a crash. Further, the research also suggests that hazard perception training can have positive impacts on reducing crash involvement. There are currently no hazard perception tests that depict real world footage and visible hazards from uh, the heavy vehicle perspective being used in existing license frameworks. Research also supports the effectiveness of training programs which address motivational and psychological, psychological aspects of driving performance. These approaches help develop higher order cognitive skills in addition to vehicle handling and driver knowledge which produces better safety outcomes. Research also shows that learner drivers of light vehicles who undertook their mandated hours of supervised driving had significantly less traffic offending and a significantly reduced risk of crashing. Industry feedback has consistently pointed to the benefits of behind the wheel experience as well. Uh, and these are reflected in the industry-based training programs and supervised driving with newly engaged employees. There are currently no minimum driving requirements in pre-licensing training and the current tenure-based progression model is based on time served or time holding a license rather than experience. The multi-combination class license currently includes all vehicles with more than one trailer, including triple and quad combinations with different couplings. These vehicles have quite different operating characteristics and increasingly more complex vehicle dynamics. Therefore, the knowledge and skills required to drive each type of multi-combination vehicle does in fact vary quite considerably. Industry has highlighted that drivers who move from uh, B-doubles to the more complex, complex multi-combination vehicles frequently struggle to make the transition and may resign their jobs in a short space of time because they're not feeling adequately skilled. The table uh, on screen highlights the difference in crash rates between vehicles covered within the current multi-combination class. Let's look then very briefly at what options are being proposed in response. So for the webinar, I'm going to outline all of the options that are being considered in the RIS, but I will highlight that the CRIS does package them in groups of options for consideration. So what you'll see here is the, uh, the full range of options. They uh, are presented in ways that they might be packaged as subsets of what I talk about today. So there's four key areas of proposed change. Two areas two and three do interact quite a bit. So the first is managing individual driver risk. And that is ensuring eligibility for drivers who don't have serious driving offences and with sufficient life vehicle experience before gaining their first heavy vehicle licence. The second area, strengthening skill and knowledge development, making competency requirements specific to each licence class, setting minimum course lengths and recognising the skill needed to drive the most complex vehicles. 
In third is embedding behind the wheel experience with minimum behind the wheel pre-license requirements and post-license supervised driving. And the final area for introducing experience-based progression options, which enables those drivers who have demonstrated driving and work experience to progress through license classes more rapidly than they can right now. Now we're going to dive into the detail of the policy options under consideration. I'll try to signpost as we go which of the four key areas we're covering as we get to them. So in this section, we're specifically looking at the changes that relate to drivers and licensing. The focus of the changes on, is on addressing the risks that are identified in the current system, which is minimising the entry and progression of those higher risk drivers who pose the greatest uh, risk of future crashes. More comprehensive competencies and assessment, which means more job ready drivers, minimum training program lengths, and an increased focus on experience and progressively building competence as the basis for licence pr progression. Uh, as, you'll, as I said, that you'll see in the series there are packages of options. What I'm going to cover here is an overview of all the options. But we'll start off by talking about area one, which is managing individual driver risk. Currently, uh, eligibility to hold a heavy vehicle licence is based on your age, the evidence of a period of time holding a lower class of licence, and completion of the required assessment, which typically or may include a training component. Fast driving behaviour is not taken into account in assessing eligibility or, or in the heavy vehicle licensing regime more generally. MUARC's modelling suggests there's a higher crash risk for heavy vehicle drivers with a lack of driving experience, a significant uh, a history of significant traffic offences or a serious offence or prior crash involvement in a heavy vehicle. The series proposes new eligibility requirements for new heavy vehicle drivers and for drivers progressing to higher licence classes. The aim is to prevent high-risk drivers from entering or upgrading the heavy vehicle licensing regime. To gain a first medium rigid or heavy rigid licence, applicants will be required to hold an open car licence, not a probationary P1 or P2 car licence. Applicants for a light rigid could still apply while on their P's as modelling does not indicate that increases risk. This will have an impact of delaying young people from driving medium or heavy rigids by around one year. Currently, they can gain a medium rigid or heavy rigid licence on a P2 licence. This may be seen as a negative by some, which are seeking to encourage young people into the industry, where I can say the change is grounded in safety research. There's been no known evaluated young heavy vehicle drivers trial in Australia or overseas, and the series is seeking views on whether there is interest in such a trial. It's not part of the proposals formally being tested under the RIS, However, we're using the RIS as an opportunity to see if there's a level of interest in that sort of a trial. I would expect a trial like that would run over many years to allow for adequate evaluation of the program and its safety outcomes. And a well-constructed trial would allow evaluation of uh, whether mitigations can be successfully put in place to manage the safety risk of younger drivers. New drivers and drivers progressing to higher licence classes will need to also have that low-risk driving history. The details of which are still to be determined, but we'll be focusing on the highest risk offences or suspensions within the last two years. This would likely mean that a driver could not have been convicted of drink or drug driving, dangerous driving, hooning or driving at speeds of more than 25 kilometres per hour over the speed limit. Now we're moving uh, more into area two, which is strengthening skill and knowledge development. There's been substantial increase in the number of higher productivity vehicles in the last five years in particular, and the range of vehicles covered by the multi-combination licence class has substantially increased from when it was first introduced. The multi-combination licence class currently includes all vehicles with more than one trailer, 
which includes triple and quad combinations with different couplings. They, these vehicles have different operational characteristics and are increasingly more complex in terms of vehicle dynamics. Hence, the knowledge and skills required to drive each of them varies considerably. The series proposes separating the multi-combination uh, license into three subclasses. This will allow driver training and assessment to be better targeted to the knowledge and skills required to drive each type of vehicle safely. The proposed multi-combination license subclasses are MC1, which would cover B-doubles or multis with B-couplings only, so that's configurations without dollies. Uh, multi-combination 2 would cover double and triple uh, road train type 1 and 2, which is configurations with uh, one or two dollies, and multi-combination 3 would focus on configurations with four or more trailers. Current PBS arrangements are not specifically impacted by these proposals. Further, a driver would need to hold a heavy combination license to be able to apply for a multi-combination one or multi-combination two license. To be eligible to apply for a multi-combination three license, the driver will have had to have held either an MC1 or MC2 class license. As with other heavy vehicle license classes, driving a driver's holding a higher MC class license can drive the lower class vehicle. So for example, a driver who would hold an MC2 class license would be able to drive a B-double just as an MC1 driver, licensed driver could do. Currently only 8% of heavy vehicle drivers, uh, licenses I should say, are multi-combination licenses. So it doesn't impact uh, the broadest portion of the industry. Of this, only a total, of this total, only a small percentage would drive uh, vehicles that would be classed under the MC3 uh, license classes. The introduction of expedited progression, which I'll discuss later on, for most drivers, the split of the MC class will not actually uh, impact on the time it takes to get to an MC3 class license. Transition arrangements for those holding a current multi-combination license would need to be addressed if this proposal goes ahead. Well, it's likely that current holders would be transitioned to an MC3 license, given that that's what the current uh, emissions are for an MC license. This hasn't been explored with all stakeholders. Most but not all jurisdictions allow a person to go directly from a heavy rigid license to a multi-combination license. The jump between a heavy rigid license and a multi-combination license is a doubling in vehicle uh, length and gross mass limit a significant increase in the complexity of the driving task given they could be multi-articulated vehicles. The series proposes that drivers are required to hold a heavy combination license before progressing to any form of multi-combination license. As I said before, only 8% of current heavy vehicle drivers have a multi-combination license. It's recognised this will close off a commonly used pathway in many jurisdictions, but the introduction of expedited progression pathways, which I'll discuss, should mean that the negative influence is not undue for most drivers who wish to progress to the higher classes of license. Now I've covered quite a bit. Uh, Judy, do we have any questions that, on what content we've covered so far? Thanks, Paul. There's been a couple of specific questions, but um, the general questions, um, there are two. Um, the first is about transition arrangements that might be in place for existing MC um, licence holders when we, if we move to the MC1, 2 and 3 arrangement. Certainly. Um, as, I, as I mentioned just before, that's not been fully worked through, but uh, as you would see, uh, as the picture of the vehicle on the screen, you would currently require an MC licence to drive that right now, and that would allow you to drive any 
legal vehicle in Australia, essentially. Uh, it's, it allows you to drive the largest of vehicles. So it would have to be a very strong case made to be able to take that away from drivers. So I would anticipate that the most likely scenario is that they would be uh, transitioned to an MC3 licence. But that does need exploration with our stakeholders and we certainly would seek views on that. Thanks, Paul. Um, a question about the um, driving um, history and how far back we might be looking um, at that driving history. Um, I can comment in regards to that question, which is that at this stage, we are proposing to look back two years, um, but very happy to receive comments from people about whether they think that's an appropriate period. Thank you, Judy. Um, and I think um, we can progress from there. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. And I will stress that um, if we'll try and focus today's answers on questions that are popping up uh, broadly, but we will endeavour to get back to anyone who asks a question today. Okay, we're now introducing area three, which is embedding behind the wheel experience in training and at the early stages of holding each uh, class of licence. So there have been shortcomings identified with the current competency standards and training and assessment pathways. And the key changes proposed are to strengthen the competencies and to introduce minimum behind the wheel time. The series identifies 184 competency elements up from the current 15, uh, which is much more fine grained and detailed. And they cover the knowledge and skills that heavy vehicle drivers need, as well as their attitude and approach to the driving task. These have been developed based on research, industry input, review of overseas approaches and coronial reports. And here's a place really where those areas two and three do interact a little, building better competencies in the training and explicitly including behind the, uh, behind the wheel and in-yard elements to the training. So training and assessment in many of the competencies could be delivered online and this allows for licensed applicants flexibility and reduced costs, uh, flexibility in undertaking training when and where it best suits them. A new online hazard perception and assessment program uh, could be introduced with tailored content for different license classes. Industry and government uh, so far have strongly supported this proposal and Austroads has started developing the material. The remaining proposed competencies would be delivered through a combination of face-to-face -face training and behind the wheel experience and assessment. Knowledge learnt online can be reinforced and built on during classroom, behind the wheel and yard time. The online competency units would be completed by applicants first. This lowers the cost for licensed applicants and enables face-to-face -face learning to be really focused on the most complex learning tasks. There are currently no mandated minimum training and assessment times for heavy vehicle driver licensing, which has led to some unusually short courses where the level of competence developed in those new drivers is questionable. So the series proposes some minimums for the time spent actually training drivers. For rigid classes, 16 to 24 hours, with at least six to eight hours devoted to behind the wheel experience. And for the combination classes, heavy combination and above, 20 to 28 hours of training, with at least eight to 10 hours devoted to behind the wheel experience. The series proposes that drivers are required to complete a minimum number of supervised driving hours after they've obtained or upgraded the heavy vehicle driver license. So four hours for medium and heavy rigid vehicles, six hours for heavy combination licenses, and eight hours for the multi-combination license classes. 
The minimum number of hours of supervised driving increases with the licence class, which reflects the relatively higher safety risk imposed by larger vehicles. Supervised driving would be delivered by a recognised supervisor who holds appropriate approval or certification. And so the CRIS proposes and uh, we seek feedback on this, uh, that a supervisor would need to have held a heavy vehicle licence of the appropriate level for at least the last five years and completed a specific credential to be, to be developed by Austrades, which will be delivered either online or face-to-face, -face, and that's about being a, a suitable supervisor. The estimated time to undertake that training and assessment would be less than one day. It's a relatively minor credential. Supervisors could be employer or non-employer based, which may mean that some drivers would have to pay for supervision themselves if they don't have access to an employer able to provide a supervisor. Some vehicle types, in particular special purpose vehicles such as cranes, do not have a second seat, which of course makes supervised driving a very difficult thing. If a person gained a licence specifically to operate this type of vehicle, exemptions may be need to be considered for that. Failure to complete supervised driving would mean a loss of licence or reversion to a lower class licence. Uh, many larger operators already undertake this level of supervised training for their new employees. It's acknowledged this does not occur for the more, for typically smaller or medium-sized operators, so it could be an added impost on employers or a cost to drivers to pay for this themselves. But on the flip side, for those who are offering it, it allows a recognition in the licensing scheme for the good practice they're doing. Now we're looking at area four, which is introducing experience-based progression pathways. Uh, currently, there's a the only option is tenure. And to progress to a higher heavy vehicle class, a driver must hold a license at the lower, appropriate lower heavy vehicle class for at least 12 months. This approach has been criticised by quite a few people because it doesn't guarantee that a driver has actually gained experience operating that lower class of vehicle. Uh, it really does leave a person in a position of holding the licence, not driving, waiting 12 months and then attempting to get the higher class of licence. And it also unnecessarily restricts skilled and competent drivers from, from progressing to the more complex vehicles, which impacts employment options and also contributes towards the driver shortage for the higher classes of heavy vehicles. Overall, it's not preferred because it's not experience-based. Uh, it provides options for those, but it does provide options for those with limited opportunity to build on driving hours in those lower classes. We recognise that there is a very big challenge in the supply of heavy vehicle drivers and the CRIS proposes retaining the tenure option, even though it's not preferred, as a no regrets option. The CRIS then talks about introducing another option for drivers of driving experience. So there's little additional overhead here. All that's required is to keep a record of driving. And this is effectively available to any employed heavy vehicle driver. Mechanisms for recording driving experience and supervision programs will need to be developed, and options for driving experience records could include technology such as in-vehicle telematics, or the use of work diaries this is the case for many drivers now with an average percentage of work time accepted as driving time if the driving time specific records aren't available. Finally, the supervision program, which uh, uh, involves certainly an additional cost in the sense that the driver will be accompanied by a supervisor. Expected to be mostly taken up by industry players who already invest in these sorts of arrangements um, in future allowing the industry supervision be recognised for licensing. And because this is uh, considered one of the strongest ways to progress, this offers the fastest expedition towards higher classes of licence. 
So to reiterate, the series in fact proposes three progression pathways and these would all be available to drivers to choose from based on their circumstance and what was available to them. So in line with National Cabinet direction to introduce a competency-based pathway, it will be, uh, it's proposed in the series that these pathways are all existing together. So the tenure remaining of 12 months reflecting the current situation for drivers as they progress to higher classes of heavy vehicle driver licence, driving experience of uh, around 600 to 700 hours or so, depending on the class of licence, uh, over a period of at least six months, and in a supervision program, around 420 to 590 working hours over at least 12 to 16 weeks of a with uh, 12 to 16 hours of a company driving. So that actually allows some uh, quite quick uh, progression through the licence classes. So the new pathways with driving experience and supervision being those specifically are based on enabling drivers who can demonstrate driving experience to progress more quickly and the benefits of driving experience have been supported by industry. The most rapid progression is available for those who use the supervision program, which is essentially a combination of mentoring and supervised driving and these programs are already in place in some larger businesses. A driver could move from a rigid uh, class of licence through to the highest MC3 class of licence in under a year in a supervision program. The driving experience pathway is expected to be particularly attractive because uh, it's not something that imposes significant extra cost. All that's needed is evidence of driving experience. That mechanism needs to be developed, but uh, given that there are mechanisms that record driving hours now, it gives a sense of the complexity not being uh, particularly high and tenure will remain an option for those who choose to take that path. The availability of heavy vehicle drivers is a really significant issue and it's affected by many different factors. The proposed changes that we have proposed in the series will make it possible to train drivers more quickly, which may help to improve the situation of driver availability. But driver licensing is just one part of many factors that affect how many heavy vehicle drivers are available for work. It's quite a complex space. There are currently around three times as many heavy vehicle driver license holders as there are heavy vehicles. Overall, the current economic and unemployment uh, levels are, are a challenge. The flowchart on the screen at the moment uh, outlines the advantages of the two new expedited pathways proposed. So the supervised program pathway and the driving experience pathway. So at the top row, you can see the base case, the current pathway. Uh, it's possible to go from a heavy rigid licence to a multi-combination licence after one year or from a medium rigid to a multi-combination licence after a period of two years. The supervision pathway, which is the third row down, uh, actually delivers a highly compressed pathway based on that supervision and mentoring uh, with other drivers. And you can see in under a year, you can progress from a medium rigid licence through to a, a multi-combination three licence. So even with the additional license classes, you can actually do it more quickly. Uh, similarly, the driving experience pathway can get you from a medium rigid license all the way through to an MC3 license in 18 months. But importantly, it'll get you into the workhorses of freight vehicles and for most special purpose vehicles in six to 12 months. So it's all but the very largest of vehicles you can get into them just as quickly under the experience pathway uh, with more experience being demonstrated as you go. The tenure pathway as proposed is extended because of the fact that the heavy combination is seen as a, is proposed as a necessary step uh, in, in moving forward. So while currently you can move from a heavy rigid to a multi-combination, the complexity of those vehicles 
uh, its belief that uh, moving to a heavy combination uh, and spending some time on that license class uh, will be to the advantage of drivers. So to summarise the proposed licence policy changes, the focus on changes is addressing risks identified in the current system, which is minimising the entry and progression of higher risk drivers who, propose the, who pose the greatest future crash risk, a more comprehensive competencies and assessment with more job ready drivers, minimum training program length to help minimise shortcuts based on commercial pressures, and an increased focus on experience and progressively building competence as the preferred basis for progression. Might pause again there. Uh, we've covered a bit again. Judy, do we have any further questions I can address? Thanks, Paul. Um, there's a few questions that have come through about overseas um, license, heavy vehicle license holders. Um, I'll just note that um, there's a specific Austroads project around um, overseas heavy vehicle license holders, um, and it's not specifically covered under the series. Um, Paul, there's been a number of question, questions about um, young drivers um, and um, options for trialling people with um, a clean driving record um, and some questions about how um, this fits with the apprenticeship programs that are being promoted within various states. Thanks, Judy. Yes, we, we certainly are using the series as an opportunity to see what interest there is for these sorts of programs for younger drivers. Um, the uh, evidence has shown that, um, that younger drivers do pose a higher level of risk, but uh, we are looking at, at options to see uh, is there a, an opportunity for a trial or bringing younger drivers into the industry in a, in a faster way. For those who are older and have their full car licence, the progression options are much faster. Uh, but for those who are moving through the car licence, the P1, P2 stages, uh, yes, there will be delays associated with what's proposed in the RIS itself. I might just add to that um, comment about the trial that um, we're certainly interested in um, uh, testing industries' um, interest in a trial um, that would have to be evidence-based and evaluated. Um, so do feel free to put your comments back um, in the RIS. There's some questions particularly about post-licence supervised driving, um, Paul, um, and people raising some challenges with that in terms of access to a vehicle, um, access to a supervisor, some of the issues around doing it in two-hour blocks um, and how it might work for MC licence holders who are travelling long distances. So a, a range of operational issues about making that work have been raised. Thanks, Judy. And yes, I really do encourage, we are consulting. This is a consultation for, the, for those issues to be raised with us. That's exactly what we want to properly understand because what we ought to propose, we need it to be practical. That's fine. Um, I think I'm happy to leave it at that. There's a couple of questions about auditing and governance, but I know you're about to cover that. So I'll let you um, go to that section. Thanks. Thanks, Judy, and hopefully we do cover that okay. And as, as I say, we will endeavour to follow up with everybody after the, the meeting. We can't get to your question. So in terms of, uh, we're going to look here now then at, at changes proposed for training providers. So currently jurisdictions determine whether to do, uh, to use an in-source or outsource assessment model and under what circumstances they do that. 
Jurisdictions manage outsource providers and most but not all training programs are under the vet sector and registered training organisation arrangements. Uh, training material and programs are developed by each outsource provider and course lengths are subject to commercial pressures and there some are, are some unusually short programs on offer. Options covered in the series to, to try and improve this space uh, propose that jurisdictions will continue to determine whether or not they offer in-sourced or outsourced assessment and that they would manage local providers but based on nationally developed standards such as eligibility, trainer qualifications and auditing tools. There are varying views about the benefits and disadvantages of remaining in the vet sector. Some of the pros include that government training funding programs typically require vet sector status and it provides a certain level of governance and oversight as well. The negatives are that trainers to, will need to have a certificate for in training and assessment is seen as a barrier to entry for some trainers, which could help contribute to a shortage of drivers and, and trainers, I should say, and cost to providers of RTO status and vet sector compliance. So there's precedent for other government regulators to impose additional requirements on vet sector programs, including minimum course lengths and use of materials. And a governance framework and standards will be developed more substantively over the next few months and the training industry will be consulted. These are expected to include training provider approval frameworks such as key eligibility criteria for trainers, standards covering delivery, reporting and non-compliance for inclusion in contracts, skills, qualifications and experience required by trainers and assessors including any ongoing professional development, a template audit tool and skills, qualifications and experience required of auditors. Uh, broadly for efficiency and consistency, uh, foundational knowledge will be delivered online as I mentioned before and the modules will be developed nationally and used by all states and territories as part of their licensing requirements. They'll deliver both a training and assessment component with applicants required to successfully complete all assessments ahead of commencing face-to-face -face training. A detailed training and assessment guide providing substantially enhanced clarity to trainers will be developed and that'll cover classroom based behind the wheel and around the vehicle training and assessment. This material will be provided to states and territories who may make modifications to suit local conditions or emphasise local issues. The actual training delivery material, slides and handouts, for example, won't be developed. So from here, I'll cover the next steps now that we've published and outlined the consultation regulation impact statement. So the series is out for comment until the 28th of October and we're seeking feedback from the community, industry, government agencies to help shape the final recommended policy. Information such as short form uh, uh, fact sheets and videos are available on the Austroads website and that's at austroads.info slash c-riz and submissions can be made in two ways. There's an online response option for uh, short to, to answer a few short questions on key policy changes because we know many people who are going to be impacted are time limited but we're still keen to hear your perspectives. And also formal longer submissions will be accepted which are generally more comprehensive and outline evidence-based positions or considerations that we should uh, take on board in developing a, a final uh, option for Minister's consideration. So once we've uh, received and considered submissions to the CRIS, the next step in the process is to develop a decision RIS for consideration by ministers. And the content of a decision RIS is, is generally, and in this case as well, will be shaped by the feedback provided to the CRIS, a more detailed assessment of the recommended elements, implementation planning, which involves heavy vehicle and driver training industries, as well as licensing authorities who will all have a part to play in that, 
and refined costs and benefits assessments. The decision RIS is expected to be considered by the Transport Infrastructure and Transport Ministers in 2023 with the final timing subject to meeting the, the meeting dates for ministers and the nature of the submissions we receive and the additional work that will be done in developing the, the decision RIS. The actual implementation of agreed changes will occur, will occur in the period post the decision the stage rollout of packaged elements. Uh, as I say, the Osteros website has a lot of extra information and can summarise a lot of what I've covered today. So more information, including fact sheets, videos and FAQs and uh, things we, we see today, we might add to the FAQs as well if we don't uh, respond to them directly. And you also find the link there to make formal submissions or to provide comments on some of the specific proposed policy changes. And you can ask a question at the email address there as well. Judy, do we have any final questions before I wrap up? There have been some questions just about how um, there, there might be um, perhaps standards put in place for the types of vehicles that are used in training courses um, and whether we're proposing to put any standards for those vehicles in place. Uh, I, I, you might be able to answer it better than me, Judy, but I don't believe the series does outline that specifically, but it's, again, certainly something we're keen to understand because we want to make sure what we put forward is going to deliver on its aims of de delivering a, su a, supply of su a sustainable supply of safe and ready drivers. Um, and if, uh, if appropriate vehicle standards are required, then um, we'd be certainly keen to hear about that. Yep, agree. Thank you. Um, look, as Paul said, there are um, a couple of other very specific questions um, and we'll look to provide answers to those um, more operational issues um, outside this um, forum. Thanks. Thank you, Judy. Ekaterina, hey, I'll hand back to you. Thanks so much. Thanks, um, Paul and Judy, and thanks, um, thanks everybody for participating in this session today. Um, so after we close out, uh, a questionnaire will pop up on your screen. So please take a couple of minutes to send us your feedback. Um, let us know what you liked or didn't like about the session. Um, we read it all and it helps us um, to improve our sessions. So once again, today's session is being recorded and we will send you the link to the recording when it's published on our website. Thanks again, everyone. Um, stay well and safe and enjoy the rest of your day.